Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buholtz, and this is episode 145, One Literary Agent's Take on Publishing, an interview with Sarah Megabo, coming to you on Thursday, May 30th, 2019. Now, I do believe I have been talking weather for the last few introductions, and let me just say, I think it's time to stop, right? No more weather. Let's not talk about weather because it's been rather sunny and rather warm for an entire week now. So it's kind of old news, right? Now, as soon as I do this and I stop talking about the weather because sunny and nice and warm is totally like not even news anymore... It will get cold and rainy again next week, and everyone in Skone will be like, Kitty, stop it. (laughs) Just thank God for all the nice weather so that we keep on having more. So we'll see. I don't know, but it's super duper nice, and we are going to have a massive bike day. Let's see. Actually, by the time you hear this, it will have been yesterday. So yesterday, which is next week in my future... We're having a massive bike day where everybody at Massive Entertainment is encouraged to ride their bicycle to work, and they're going to have workshops on like um, how to fix things, and obviously, I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm like, I don't know, what would the workshops be on? Something about brakes? I don't know. I get on my bike, and I just ride it. <laughs> so I think I should probably go to some of these workshops, don't you? Anyway, so once again, I do hope that your almost summer or your almost winter are treating you the way that you like them to be. When I am in the Southern Hemisphere, I am really hoping for cool weather so I can wear some of my favorite sweaters. And I'm already starting to think about hot chocolate and fireplaces. So wherever you are, I hope that the weather is like so awesome that it's not even worth talking about anymore. Now, in other news, for those of you who have been following my podcasts and my little bits and pieces and small segments on burnout, um, there is something that I am going to lead by example, even though it's really, really hard. Okay. There are times when you are recovering from burnout where things are just too much. You have once again somehow managed to get too many balls in the air. They are hitting each other. They are hitting you on the head. They are falling on the ground and you're trying to throw them back up into the air again. Um, You are possibly noticing that um, your emotional state is going backwards, which is not good. We need physical health. We need emotional stability and happiness. And sometimes we need to just change things in order to make sure that these important uh, physical and emotional health are in so many ways the cornerstones of how we live the rest of our lives. They're the foundation on which everything else sits. So when those start to be shaky in any way, the I mean, the first thing that you see is that somebody's coming to an inspectant building to see how can they firm up the foundation? How can they make things be safe and firm and well so that the whole building doesn't come tumbling down? Because that is sort of what it feels like when you're in the middle of a terrible bit of burnout like I was last year. So when you start feeling that the foundation maybe is a little shaky, no matter what it takes, we have got to let some of the balls go for later. This is horrible. It really hurts. There is nothing that I really want to let go of. I really enjoy my job. I love podcasting. I love writing and I miss writing because the podcasting has a, a schedule to it that forces me to, um, I mean, because by choice. See, you notice the words that we use? Nobody's forcing me to do anything, are they? But if I want to stick to a podcast schedule, there are certain things that need to be done in a certain amount of time that that takes. And if it means that I am taking that time away from writing, well, in some ways there is a pie and you can only cut the pieces so many ways before there just aren't any other pieces left. Now I have started mixing way too many analogies and metaphors here. This is what I need to do. I need to let at least one of the balls go for now. doesn't mean forever. So if you feel like you're juggling too much and there's nothing that you can let go of, it feels like there's nothing you can let go of. Trust me, I understand. I have had tears and uh, frustrated bursts of kind of anger that feel like anger anyway, and, and I know it's just frustration, trying to figure out how I can keep everything going without 
stopping anything. <laughs> I want to keep on doing everything. Um, but you know what? If it's not working, it's not working. And it's not worth your health. It's certainly not worth, worth your mental health. And if you have had experience with burnout, it is absolutely, absolutely not worth going backwards to that place again, right? So like I said, I don't want to be do as I say, not as I do. So I have decided that I'm going to uh, start a summer schedule. Uh, so starting next week, which it will be uh, the first week of June, I will not put out a podcast episode and I will do it every other week thereafter. So the second Thursday in June will be the next podcast ep episode after this one. And I'll do it every other week for the summer. I will still do the first Sunday of the month encouraging words episode because I love that one. And I probably get the most feedback from you about that one as being the one that you love and that is most helpful and hopefully most encouraging to you. So I just wanted to let you know, A, that that will be the new schedule for the summer and B, please look at your life. Or if you have a friend that you worry is struggling, struggling with juggling, um, please talk to them and help them to find something that they can cut at least for a while. It doesn't have to be forever. But it's so important for us to protect our emotional, physical, all the different kinds of health that we have. It's important to protect that as much as we can. And as much as we think that we have no choice about things, there are some choices. Sometimes the choice is I have to keep going the way that I am because of, you know, um, financial issues, a sick family member or something like that. But there probably are things that we can do to keep ourselves from getting into that pit again. It's not a good pit, remember? Remember what it felt like? Um, so here I am trying to encourage you by saying, I'm going to do this thing, and I think it will be the, the best thing for right now for my health. Um, and I really, really hope that this is an encouragement to you to look at all the different areas of your life and the health that you're feeling and just asking yourself, is everything going okay? Is there any change that I could make just for a little while maybe or a permanent change? Um, did I tell you that I have been going to the gym with my husband? Yeah. 4.30 in the morning, the alarm goes off, and then we go to the gym mostly three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, for around an hour to an hour and a half, depending on whether or not I do some running afterwards. Let me just tell you, running after doing a hit class that my husband made just for the two of us. Um, there was one point where I was like, I just have to hold on to the, to the sides of the treadmill because I'm really afraid I'm just going to fall off of it from being so tired. But um, you know what? My body is a little stronger. And so I'm like, all right, I'm seeing a little bit of result. I'm going to keep on going. So, but you notice since I added that in, that was near the 1st of April, it was right after my birthday. Then that means that the only way to not lose sleep, because sleep is super important to me, that other things get cut. So here's hoping that I am balancing things uh, in a good and healthy way and being a good example to you as a person talking about burnout um, that is not, um, yeah, I just, I just still feel really bad that for years I was teaching that time management class and helping people figure out how they can milk more hours out of the day and realizing that that's how I probably got myself into burnout and thinking, oh my gosh, I just, I need to make up for that. I need to make sure that I am not encouraging people to work so hard that they actually um, risk their health for it. So there I am. This is my verbal hug to you, my encouragement. So look around, see if there's anything that needs to be changed. In the meantime, this is a great episode. You're just going to love it. Sarah is fun and smart and funny and just super nice. If you ever have a chance to meet her at a writer's conference, you should definitely just walk up and say hi. She's just really nice person. But you know, the thing that I admire about her most is a literary, literary agent. Sorry, I get so excited and then I talk too fast. The thing I admire most about her as a literary agent is that she is on top of her game. She really is interested in all aspects of her business. And she really wants to make sure that she's doing the best job with the people that she's working with, with the authors that she's choosing to represent. And I have to say that it just makes me super happy to be like, wow, that's the kind of literary agent any of us would want, I would think. So she has got some wonderful advice. Um, regardless of where you are in your career, 
one of our many, many uh, rabbit trails will probably be quite helpful for you. And definitely, please uh, let other people know about this episode, you know, tweet it, uh, post it on Facebook or whatever uh, social media that you really like, because I really, really want people to um, have a sense of what will work best for them and feel a little bit calmer about some of the questions that they just don't know the answer to. Um, Sarah does a really good job at, I think, of helping all of us to be like, okay, just calm down, ask myself, where am I getting this information and does it even apply to me personally anyway? So without further ado, let us go into the interview with Sarah and please have a fantastic week. Take care of yourself and try to get a little writing done. Today's guest is Sarah Megabo. Sarah is a literary agent with KT Literary out of Highlands Ranch, Colorado. She has worked in publishing since 2006 and represents New York Times bestselling authors, including Margaret Rogerson, Ronnie Loren, Jason M. Huff, Jalee Johnson, and newly Casey McQuiston. She specializes in launching debut authors and working on long-term career development and profit strategy with them. She is a graduate of Northwestern University with degrees in women's studies, gender studies, and American history. Always LGBTQ plus friendly. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. It is so good to have you. You and I have been talking about doing this for almost a year. It's so funny. I remember we met at the Romance Writers National Convention last summer here in Denver. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And I, we connected because I had just been to Sweden. Yeah. Um, and love it so much. <laughs> My husband's band is going back again this coming November for their fourth tour of Sweden. And for awesome. sure, it is our, our favorite place in the world. Sweet. Well, you and I are going to have to have Fika together. <laughs> ah, I have. Look at this. I even pulled this out for you. Oh, it's, it's a postcard. It's a, some, I, we were there on Semla Day. And, um, nice. Yes. And so we have Fika. We have Fika. Um, placemats in our house and mugs and it was so much fun <laughs> that's awesome yeah. all right well I am definitely going to have to find out his uh his band tour dates and cities okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll talk, books. we'll talk about music <laughs> that's right that's right yeah because everybody's going to want to know a thousand questions so I thought maybe we kind of start a little bit at the beginning a little bit of Absolutely. your beginning if you want and also um, sometimes when I'm giving people uh, advice or ideas, directions, uh, and you know what, where they may fi find their answers, I'm like, okay, well, I actually started in the 90s and things have changed a lot in the last 30 years. Yeah. So why don't you just kind of take it and go in the direction that you think sounds, uh, you know, um, in, that will help people to kind of come to the beginning of the rest of our questions. Well, it's so funny because when you emailed me and said, I started writing in the 90s, um, a thing that people say is, oh my gosh, how do you survive? How do you work in publishing with all the recent change? And I think publishing has been changing for decades. You know, yeah. change didn't start with the evolution of the ebook. Um, and I was just on the internet a second ago looking up if it was Mr. Simon or Mr. Schuster, and I couldn't find it quickly enough. I'm sorry. But back in the 20s, one of the two of them um, introduced the returns model, and that was a huge moment of mar market disruption. And then, like you were saying, well, then there was the 70s with the mass market paperback. That was right. market disruption. And then in the 90s, it was the big box store. So when you were starting writing, that was just when our big box stores um, – what were they? Barnes and Noble and Borders were launching in the nineties and was all sort of on the back of Harry Potter success. And yeah. then of course in whatever it was, 2010 with the um, introduction to the market of the iPad, all of a sudden eBooks became more easily consumable. It wasn't that we had an eBook revolution, it's that we had a device revolution. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it was so funny hearing you say, talk, you know, starting in the 90s. And I always think back to the 20s and interruption. Right. But I, and those, are, those are the things that I tend to watch. And people say, well, oh my gosh, is, is publishing changing? Yeah, but it's changing all the time. And that's, you know, we just go with the flow. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is good because um, I can't remember. See, now, if I had thought that we might be talking a little bit of history, I would have tried to remember some of my dates. But I remember um, finding some information on the kind of the beginning of popular publishing in London in yeah. the 1800s. Oh, sure, sure. Wow. 
those people were really smart. They had as many amazing ideas as we do today. Absolutely. And I think, you know, something that when we get worried about P&L statements and publicity campaigns and, and deadlines and release dates and, and advances and option clauses and et cetera, what we forget or what we forget to think about and acknowledge is even way back in the 1800s, et cetera, we have readers. Look at all these fabulous readers that love reading books. And, you know, ultimately, fundamentally, um, you know, they're the wind beneath our wings. That is, yeah. it is constant. It's growing and it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I'm not, um, I, I've never really thought that publishing was a zero sum game. Have, right. Is there any part of it that you think does work that way? Um, you know, any part well, that people should be worried that like, oh, if I help, you know, my friend beside me, then one of us isn't going to get what we want out of this. That's not been my experience. Yeah. Um, I think what is tough to explain to groups of people would be expectations because mm-hmm. I, I'm one of my um, areas of expertise is in crafting a profit strategy for an individual author. Uh, but when I stand up in front of a group of people, it's very important for me to tell, to encourage writers to vet information for their own situation. So you were saying, you know, if two people are standing next to each other and one person gets something, will the other person not get something? That's not my experience. Um, However, if someone stands in front of a group of authors and says, the one thing to do to make a whole bunch of money is X, that's not true. Yeah. Typically. And so, you know, when I speak to, like you had mentioned Ronnie Loren, and I have a copy of uh, one of Ronnie's books right here. You know, when I speak to Ronnie, Ronnie has uh, 10 or 15 books um, for sale. (laughs) Uh, Ronnie's very prolific. She studies the market so carefully. She works on her craft so carefully. Her books are New York Times and USA Today bestselling books. Uh, We have deals in Germany. We have deals, you know, in audiobook. strategy for Ronnie is different than, say, strategy for Casey, whom you very kindly mentioned. Thank you. Uh, Casey's book launched yesterday on the New York Times and USA Today bestseller list, so we're still riding that high. Wow. Uh, But but strategy for Ronnie and strategy for Casey are two very different things. And so when you say, is it a zero-sum game? No, I don't think so. However, I do think that um, it can be difficult for me as an agent to portray publishing in a way that satisfies questions for a mass group of people. Uh, I feel very confident about it one-on-one with my clients, but sometimes I feel like I say something and I think in the back of my mind, oh, that's a gross overgeneralization. How can I be saying that? Yeah. All right. So that's one thing we'll just make really clear right now. One more time. (laughs) A lot of what you and I are going to talk about over the next few minutes may be in some ways, gross overgeneralization. You're talking to a whole lot of people right now. Right, right, exactly. Well, and I appreciate, you know, that you said, I'm thinking about London in the 1800s. And of course, you know, the experience of readers and writers in London in the 1800s would be very different than the experience of readers and writers in, say, Florida in the 1800s or readers and writers in, say, Sweden in the 1800s. Right. Yeah. Okay. I hadn't even really thought about that, but of course it would be. Of course it would be. <laughs> oh, right. thank you. <laughs> yeah. And actually, sorry. No, I was just gonna say those are those are all the things that I think about and talk about, and I. I... Yeah. Now I know that you go to a lot of writers' conferences, and I don't know if I've ever asked you if you've been to ones outside the United States. But um, I've lived in Australia, New Zealand, and Sweden now, in addition to the U.S. And what's really been interesting to me is the number of people who they read a certain way, and that's the way they read. So, and it also changes. So when I moved to Australia in 2005, uh, end of 2005, almost no one that I knew had ever read a book digitally in any format. Mm -hmm. It was just paper. It was just a matter of whether or not you like paperback or hardcover. (laughs) But, you know, um, five years later when I moved away and moved back, there was a whole lot more digital. But then here in Sweden, the bookstores to me seem big and healthy. I don't know what their P&L statements are like, but there is a bookstore, at least one in every mall, plus a science fiction bookstore, a comic bookstore, you know, and it, people here seem to be very interested in reading and they seem to be very interested in reading paper, but 
equally happy to, maybe not equally, but um, willing, willing to read digitally as well. So it's a different location and I found it to be, you know, a different um, market expectation maybe. Mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty astute observation, frankly. What is the name of your big science fiction bookstore in Stockholm? Because I've been there. Oh, okay. I don't know about Stockholm. Oh, oh I've only been God. there a couple of days. How, do I need to go here? It is. First of all, it's amazing. Second of all, I spent way too much money. And third of all, I spent money on print books that I had to then put in a suitcase and ship home. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and... I work in publishing. I get boxes of books from publishers all the time, and I still spend thousands of dollars a year on print books. I don't ridiculous, but that's it was beautiful. My son bought like three or four manga books for the travel, and I bought, you know, my own clients were in the bookstore, which was such a thrill. But oh, and to right. see like there was some beautiful, not first edition, but but European editions of the Harry Potter books and hardcover, and it, I mean the Stockholm sci-fi fantasy bookstore was amazing. Oh my goodness! Um, just, I, just because I've been there, and you're right, even you know walking up and down this, where were we? We were in the street in old, in the old town of Stockholm. And there was another bookstore. I was thinking, wow, that's really robust. I mean, I study analytics pretty carefully. So I can, again, if we accept a gross overgeneralization, I can share some of the analytics I know about print and, and digital. I will also say that what I've been seeing in the past two years, especially for romance novels and especially for science fiction fantasy novels is a huge increase in people reading uh, audiobooks. So what I know is that in 2005, like you were saying, and this is probably pretty U.S.-based data, so take this with a grain of salt. If you were in Australia or if some of your listeners are in Sweden or London or wherever, this is probably U.S.-based data. Uh, 2005, we had primarily a print market. You said whether it was hardcover, whether it was mass market, uh, people just chose which format to read, but they read it in print. And then, like I said, it wasn't the ebook that was the revolution. It was the device that created the revolution. First, we had um, iPads, excuse me. And as soon as people started getting iPads, they started consuming ebooks because it was convenient and mm. in some cases cheaper. Not always, but uh, yeah. there was a big boom, particularly in romance, for those very, very cheap 99 cent ebooks. And people, you know, would get their iPad maybe for a holiday or birthday or whatever and wake up the next morning hungover in their pajamas and just auto-click on those 99-cent e-books. That created a lot of market disruption in whatever it was, 2009, 2010, 2011. And again, not because of the e-book, but because of the device. And then shortly after the iPad, there was, of course, the Kindle. And those two things, uh, what we saw is that the e-book consumption, again, in the U.S., went from under 1% to 20% of the market by wait a minute, I have to remember, by dollar. Okay. By dollar. I'm going to check on that because it's very, very different units in dollars. Um, In about about two years, it went from under 1% to 20% of the market in about two years. That's huge market disruption. Since then, it has been creeping backwards. So um, what you said is people seem very happy in Sweden to be reading in print, um, and that has proven to be true according to the numbers. Okay. So, what happened was we had a huge explosion and then it's been going creeping backwards. However, if we break that data down further by genre, it's very striking. So for example, you and I met at a romance writers convention. And if we look at the entire ecosystem of publishing, that would include picture books, middle grade novels, young adult novels, romance novels, science fiction, fantasy novels, literary novels, commercial novels, the 15th, you know, printing of the Hobbit. Yeah cookbooks, if we look at that entire ecosystem, right, right now, ebook consumption is about 18%. But if we break it down, and we look, for example, at middle grade novels, ebook consumption is under 2%. If we look at uh, romance novels, ebook consumption can be up to 70%. So the the ebook um, boom really, really, really affected romance and barely affected, say, middle grade novels. Now, I don't represent literary fiction, so I can't speak to that piece of data, uh, but I follow my own genres pretty carefully. And a big breakout, what we might consider, like Jason Huff, uh, he wrote uh, the, the, his debut book, The Darwin Elevator, launched on the New York Times bestseller list, and he's science fiction. Um, his ebook numbers might be 50% ebook, which is very, very, very high for science fiction, but a standard science fiction novel probably is being consumed at about 20, 20%, 20, 22% ebook. So I look at those numbers very, very carefully. But what you're saying, I think, and from my perspective, 
we have just so many readers and we, you know, the generation that we might call millennials are people who grew up with Harry Potter, who grew up with authors making money, who grew up with books being popular, books being cool, a robust and enthusiastic young adult section for them to read from, books being turned into movies, books being turned into theme parks. So we're riding this huge wave of excitement um, based on Harry Potter for this entire generation of readers, which positively influences everyone. Yeah. Uh, but back to your point about formats, you're right. Now people read hardcover or maybe they read mass market paperback or trade paperback or they consume it in an ebook. And we've seen a huge bump in audiobook. Yeah. And those are the things that I follow carefully so that when I offer representation to a new author, I can say, oh, you know, I just did it. It hasn't been announced yet, but I just did a deal for a debut middle grade author. When I spoke with this person um, offering representation, I said, this is the strategy for making money for you is going to be primarily in print. We're looking um, for librarian support. We're looking for independent bookstore support. We're looking for trade reviewers to really get behind this book and tell school librarians and teachers why this book should be read on curriculum. And the ebook strategy for a middle grade debut is going to be minimal. Yeah. Uh, conversely, like with Casey's book, which is a queer romance, um, we wanted a very strong ebook strategy and our wonderful, wonderful publisher Macmillan did that for us. So that's a lot of information. I've talked for a while. What does that bring <laughs> for you? And what kinds of things do you hear in the market or heard at the Romance Writers Convention last year or, or are curious about? Yeah, it's interesting because um, I, I got into Chiclet right as Chiclet was like, we're here and we're gone. <laughs> yep, 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 sure. yep. So I ended up self-publishing mostly just because um, it was just really bad timing. Uh, yeah, which I, I think happens, uh, you know, there's an ebb and flow. I, I see most things in business uh, as an ebb and flow. And would you agree that that's probably true in publishing? I love that, that phrase. Yes. Okay, good. So um, my contacts and everybody that I knew and all the things that I knew about were all 100% traditional publishing up until about 2005 or six. Then I started hearing things about self-publishing, but didn't really know that much about it. And then ended up self-publishing in 2011. Uh -huh. So since 2011, now it's been, you know, eight years of listening to, like, I am a avid listener of Mark Dawson's self-publishing formula podcast. And awesome. I'm sorry, he just changed the name of the show, self-publishing show. <laughs> awesome. And yeah. And uh, Joanna Penn's the creative pen podcast. Yep. Love them both. Uh, and the thing is, is that they're just really, um, they're just really intelligent, creative, positive people. And I like that. Yeah. So a lot of the things that I hear from them, I'm thinking, you know what, honestly, that, that would be good advice or um, good information to know for somebody who's traditionally or hybrid or self-published. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think um, those are two reputable and exciting people. And like you said, positive people to listen to. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because the people who are saying the sky is falling, they may be enjoying that conversation, but I'm not sure how helpful it is for the rest right. of the people listening. Right. I, I, you know, I would imagine we could find that in any industry, a small percentage of people saying the sky is falling. Yeah. Um, I've never had that experience in publishing. I have to say that since 2006, I've worked with talented, enthusiastic, passionate, experienced people. And that's my authors, of course, uh, editors, publicists, sales directors, bookstores, book buyers, librarians. It's, I mean, reviewers, everything, bloggers. Um, I work with really, really positive people. So I, I mean, I guess, you know, you could say the sky is falling and have a glass of wine. And yeah. <laughs> You know, and it's funny, the reason why I think that it's probably true in every industry is that just recently I've been doing some research that has to do with uh, global warming, climate change, uh, all sorts of biodiversity problem issues. And um, it's really interesting. There's a lot of very intelligent, highly educated people who know what they're talking about, who are the sky is falling. Yeah. And, um, and some of them have a really... I, I read the first chapter or two of a New York Times bestseller that I was just like, you know what? This guy has a passive aggressive negative attitude underlying everything he says, and I am not going to enjoy this book. So I just stopped reading it, even though apparently the entire rest of the world is 
you know, loved this book according to uh, the statistics, but right. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, so whether the world is ending or not, whether we are or aren't going to see massive, more major changes in publishing, the fact is, is that here we are today and there are things that we can do to improve our writing and our writing careers. And one of the things that we can do is find out what publishing professionals with experience like you um, can tell us about what we can do. So I have a couple of questions written down, mostly trying to keep track of of things that I think probably people would ask. So so I have several and maybe we'll just kind of see how much time we have to get through four or five and feel free to go off on tangents because... When I, when I, um, when I do uh, panels at conferences, I frequently say, okay, now it's time for a lightning round. Oh, there we go. I could do that. Let's do it. All right. So one thing that I know that people want to uh, ask and, and I think that they understand the least amount is how a, how a literary agent works with traditionally pubbed people, hybrid authors, and some people may or may not know what hybrid authors are. And, um, if you really are sure that you're going to self-publish, is there anything that you should be aware of having to do with literary agents? Well, that's a great question. Um, okay, so I think going back to what you and I were speaking about just a few minutes ago from a lightning round, that it's very important for each individual person listening to this conversation to vet information for their own situation. So, for example, yeah, I've been working in publishing since 2006, and you've been working in publishing since 1990s. Um, A person who's listening to podcasts on self-publishing who is a debut is going to have very, very different analytical data that's relevant to them than you or I will. Yeah. Um, so this is the, these are the four things that I would tell a person to, to, to vet before listening to any piece of information. Where are you in your publishing career? Are you a debut? Are you published with 14 books on the shelf, uh, whether that's digital or print like Ronnie Loren? Did you, do you have one book out like Casey McQuiston? Um, or, you know, where, where specifically are you? Then the second thing is, in what genre of book do you write? So if somebody writes middle grade and they want to self-publish, the bad news is that it's going to be a really tough battle because yeah. so few middle grade novels are consumed electronically. Uh, third thing is, what is your personality? Um, I have clients who love the team approach, write a book, hand the book to their publisher, and they don't worry, you know, the publicity is taken care of, the packaging is taken care of, the uploading is taken care of, the distribution into the bookstores is taken care of, the reviews are taken care of. I have clients that prefer to have more control over their property. And for a client who prefers more control over their property, that author may thrive in the self-publishing environment where it is like owning a business. And Mm -hmm. and we have control over pricing and covers and release dates. Uh, So the third question is, you know, what is the personality? And then the fourth question is really, how quickly does an author write? Um, It has been true, although this data is changing, it has been true that electronic books have been in the past several years consumed more quickly, perhaps than print, especially in the romance genre. And again, we're all nodding our heads. This is a gross overgeneralization. Um, And so authors who are churning out two to three books per year in the past couple of years, there is some data showing that those authors have been making more money. However, I think that's changing. And there are authors that just simply do not write that quickly. And so for authors that do not write that quickly, or perhaps do not write in romance, traditional publishing may have more prose than self-publishing. And I will also say that if one gets 10 literary agents in the room, they are going to get 11 different answers to that question. (laughs) I'm only answering for myself. But in general, if one is looking at traditional publishing versus self-publishing, it's those four things. Where are you in your career? In what genre do you write? What is your personality and how quickly do you write? It's perfect. I love it. You're good at lightning round. All right, let's do another. <laughs> so hybrid authors, that's somebody who, is bo- who has books that are traditionally published and some that are self-published. Um, what do those authors look like to a literary agent? And that's going to be an overgeneralization. Or what do they look like to you? Um, I, so again, this is answering for me, not for the other literary agents out there. A hybrid author is a person who is uniquely suited to writing quickly. Mm 
And again, this is not a trait that everyone has. Or what I've seen is someone says, oh, I'm going to write three books a year. And they write three books that first year. And they write three books the second year. And they write one book the following year. And then they write zero books. And then they write one book. And then they write three books. And then they write zero books. And that's more true. And that's more common. Um, So a hybrid author... I think by default, what you're asking is somebody comes to me in the what we call the query slush pile or the um, the submissions pile and says, I have four books that are self-published and I, and I have a new series that I'm starting and that I'd like to pursue a traditional publishing deal with. And it's it's these three books and it sounds like this. But meanwhile, I'd like to continue self-publishing. And again, that's a really, really rare trait. I work. Let me see if I can find. Hold on one second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I work with L. Penelope. Um, L. Penelope's uh, Song of Blood and Stone was originally self-published, huge breakout success. And um, this author went on to sign a four-book deal with Macmillan that I helped with. And meanwhile, we're working on other books for the young adult market, for the romance market, etc. Um, and this is an author who writes very quickly. So that's, that's sort of what it looks like, is, is hybrid publishing today, in my experience, is somewhat predicated upon an author who writes quickly, and probably in romance. Does right. that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it's a good answer, yeah. There's a like lot it. of caveats. Like, if somebody comes yeah. to you and says, I have 10 ideas and I'm looking for an agent, that is not a hybrid publisher. Right. right. That is somebody who we're looking for a book deal for book number one, and we'll deal with the other nine later. Yeah. Yeah. Hybrid, definitely traditionally published and self-published. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, now, here's a submissions question. Ooh, okay. uh, this one's an easy one for you, though. Okay. If someone submits to you and you say no, I try not to use the word reject too often. I try oh, to couch yeah. it in other words. Pass. <laughs> Pass. You say no, not right now. Yeah. Pass. Yeah. <laughs> Um, can they submit, a, this is a longer multi-part question. Can they submit a different story to you? What about a different agent at your agency? I noticed that like yours, there's at least two different people who, um, cover some of the same genres. Mm-hmm. And do you think that your answers will be moderately true for other literary agencies? So my answers will not be at all true for the other literary agencies. Okay. <laughs> um, an author has, is looking for a partnership with a literary agent in order to get a traditional publishing deal. Then the first thing that that author needs to do is make sure their manuscript is complete. And that's true for every literary agent. If you're writing fiction, if you're writing nonfiction, it's different. I don't represent nonfiction. So let's set that aside. The book has to be complete. And then the second thing is the author absolutely positively must know in what genre they have written. And um, the way that I describe this is imagine walking into a bookstore and there's an aisle that says romance and there's an aisle that says young adult. There's an aisle that says science fiction fantasy. There's an aisle that says cookbook. There's an aisle that perhaps says literary fiction. Which shelf is your book going on? Okay. Now, if the author can concretely say, I've written a romance novel, then that author is looking for literary agents that represent romance novels. And there's a couple great places online to do that. There's one called Manuscript Wishlist. Okay. There's one called agentquery.com. And then now here's to answer your question about are my rules the same as other agents' rules? Unfortunately, no. After Mm -hmm. an author gets a list of all the agents potentially that they want to submit to, the author has to spend time going to each and every agent's website. And that's time consuming and it's difficult. If you have a list of 50 agents we want to submit to, there's 50 different submission guidelines. Yeah. So um, that's part of the process. It's just as much part of the process as finishing the book. Right. We also encourage people to vet their literary agent to make sure that they are legitimate. And we can do that at a uh, place called AAR Online, which is the right. Association for Authors Representatives, or Google the SFWA website, which is called Writers Beware. And then we go and we read the submission guidelines and we follow them. So for me personally, I like what you say about it's not a rejection. So in fact, I just signed a new client last week who has written 10 books and has submitted each and every one of them to me. And I have passed on on nine of them. And on the 10th, I offered representation. So yes, apps, and I didn't know that when I offered to this person. Um, he was telling me the story as I was offering representation and talking about my style. But it is it is um, absolutely okay that if some if book number one gets passed, that the author completes another book and 
submits again for me. Excellent. Okay. And at your agency, if you pass and there's another agent there who also works in the same genre, then should they uh, submit to a different agent at the same agency? Yeah, you can. Okay. Um, you know, what's again, you said, if it's in the same genre, um, yeah, because yeah. I've talked to some agents and they're like, once we see the manuscript, if we're even remotely interested, it gets passed around to whoever also works in that genre enough oh. for us to, yeah, I can't think of which one it was, but it's one of the bigger ones. Yeah. And they're like, if one of us says uh, no on this manuscript, all of us are saying no on that manuscript. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I, I, I don't, we don't necessarily do it that way. Okay. Um, I, get, I get between 20 and 20,000. 20 and 25,000 submissions a year. Um, yeah. Oh my and God. I'm going to sign between three and four clients out of that. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't, I know my process pretty well and it's, it's pretty streamlined at this point. Yeah. I love my colleagues so much. And so I think that if I love something, I'm going to offer representation to it. And if I don't love something, it's not like I'm going to, say, I didn't love this, but you might want to spend your time doing it because they've got their own submissions to go through. Right. But that's not, that's a, that's again, a generalization. Um, yeah. We tend to work pretty closely and talk about things that we're reading. Um, but I'm the only agent at the agency that does romance novels. So. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. All right. <laughs> Let's see. What about, oh, so actually a friend of mine um, was, I was like, hey, I'm talking to an agent tonight. Do you have any questions? And she was like, okay, what if I get a rejection with feedback? Do oh. I reply or am I supposed to just be like, it's a gift. Please don't bother me because I said no. Oh, that's a great question. Because it's not a um, uh, revise and resubmit. Right. It's just a, I didn't or a, here's an idea. Um, I will only speak for myself. To this okay. Idea. It's fine if somebody replies. I I stay very very on top of my uh, submissions. So if somebody takes the time to say thanks so much for your thoughts or something, then I will probably write back and say my pleasure. Best wishes to you. Um, I try really hard not. This is such a controversial issue, so I'll be careful. But I try really hard not to provide feedback. Because there's a lot of reasons. One is, if I were to say to somebody, for example, I think your heroine should be stronger, have more agency, then yeah. I'm afraid that author's going to go back with an eye towards revision to make the heroine have more agency and then come back and say, great, I did what you said. Will you read it again? When really, if I had editorial feedback, I'd offer representation and, and, and give the author the opportunity to revise with my help. Right. Um, the reason is that there's um, more and more writers posting our rejections on closed door chat loops. Oh. And I feel uncomfortable about that um, yeah. because I might have said something to be encouraging and the nuance of that communication may not come through on a Facebook chat group or something like that. Yeah. So my pass tend to be thank you so much for submitting this. I'm unfortunately going to pass on reading the full manuscript or pass on offering representation and I wish you the best. Yeah. So I try really hard not to give, give any feedback kind of for those reasons. And if somebody writes back and says, oh, can you give me feedback? I'll write back and say, I'm so sorry. I don't, ha I don't tend to offer critiques on sample pages. And that's, um, it also keeps the process streamlined. I find that if people right. can hear back from me in two weeks rather than two months, that's beneficial, even if I don't provide feedback. Yeah. That's and 20,000. Yeah. Yeah. 20,000. 20, how could you possibly? Yeah. <laughs> 1% I mean, would still be too many. Well, you know, it, like you talked about at the beginning, which I thought was a really good point, is when I offer representation to, representation to somebody, it's because I, in my head, I know I have a plan that I can present to this person for how they can make money. Yeah, And so I want to love the book and I also want to have a plan for making money on the book. And if those two boxes aren't checked, it's not a rejection. It's just a pass. Right. I love it. I love the way you think. It's so business, but also with like, you have such a great smile and personality and yet you're like totally business. I'm like, perfect combination. I'm like <laughs> nine out of 10 on socially awkward. So, you know. <laughs> 
I try. I goof a lot. I mess it up a lot. (laughs) (laughs) You know what, though? It's hard. um, The social media world that we've created, I think, has made it really hard for people to just relax and be themselves and not be looking for things that aren't there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Now, you kind of touched on a question that I am going to rework into a broader and hopefully more helpful question. And then, um, and then we'll see if we have any other kind of like rabbit trails that we want to go off on. Okay. So, you know, because, um, you know, lots of authors, ones that you represent and hundreds that you've met that you're not representing, that we can be a very neurotic bunch (laughs) as so many creative people can be. And sometimes we get stuck on the tiniest of details. Like, is it okay that I reply with a thank you for reading my work and getting back to me? I really appreciate it. I hope you have a great day. And, and I know people who have really gotten like, I don't know, like what, what if it ruins my chances? They're like, stop emailing me. And I've heard some agents say it would be great if people would just like keep that thank you to themselves so that my inbox isn't overwhelmed. So I know it is a question that has as many answers as agents, but when it comes to neuroses and getting caught in the details, let's look at it from that angle. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I keep my client list as small as possible so that I can tailor my style to each individual author. Some are neurotic, some are extroverted, some are introverted, some are analytical. Everybody's different. Everybody needs a different style. I will say that compared to the music industry, publishing is fluffy bunnies and rainbows. (laughs) Right. And I, you know, I I live with um, an entertainer at home. And so I, I am well aware, well, at least... I try to tailor my agenting style to be as communicative as possible because I feel like when I communicate proactively, then I can reduce some of the nerves. I can't reduce all of it. I can't change publishing. It's always going to be opaque. It's always going to be ever-changing. It's always going to be unpredictable, Um, but I can communicate. And that's, that's the tool I have in my toolbox to at least help or try to help. So maybe, um, people who are submitting don't have an agent yet, don't have that kind of feeling of, well, honestly, there is a certain uh, amount of safety and security being like, okay, here I am. This is where I'm supposed to be. But if they're still looking for that place, I guess I'm looking for your advice on how they can calm down and not worry about the things that are not the big things. Because the next thing I'd like to talk about are what are the big things? What are the things that wow you or the things that are like an immediate no? So I'm kind of moving in that direction. I think the thing that keeps me grounded is I walk into a bookstore or a library. <laughs> nice. Honestly, I, you know, if somebody is feeling caught up in the minutia, uh, if they have access nearby to a bookstore or a library, take a cup of tea, take a cup of coffee, hide a flask of wine in your pocket and go walk <laughs> up and down the aisles because all those people were at one point a query letter. We're yeah. agent in a, in a bookstore. I mean, 99% of the books in there have literary agents have gone through the query process. Yeah. That is lovely. I love that idea. Yeah. So go I, be surrounded by people who were once feeling like you and yeah. know that you will get through it. Yes. Read, enjoy, touch the book. And if we are not nearby a lot, uh, you know, a bookstore, because not everybody is, yeah. um, you know, pop open uh, your Google and scroll around at like um, Powell's. Powell's is an independent bookstore in um, Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Yeah. And you just the homepage, look at what they're talking about or go to school library journal and see what the school library journal or go to your kid's scholastic book fair or mm-hmm. your neighbor's school's scholastic book fair and walk up and down the aisles. I love scholastic. It was like... Right. The thing that had me reading my whole young life. Well, and you mentioned at the beginning, Jalee Johnson, whose book, The Mark of the Dragonfly, hands down, I mean, hundreds of thousands of copies of The Mark of the Dragonfly through Scholastic Book Fair. Wow. I know I have that one around here. Oh, yeah. We must see this cover. (laughs) For anyone who's not watching on YouTube, uh, you might want to just look at, oh, wow, these gorgeous. Gorgeous. But it's called The Mark of the Dragonfly. And that was, I mean, that was a huge Scholastic Book Fair success. Wow. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. So let's move into what are the things that, this is just your opinion, what you're looking for in writers and books, and maybe even as a reader, what are the things that wow you, the things that make you think this is a possibility, I might call them or whatever? Um, 
a succinct pitch, and a unique voice. So for example, I have a debut author that just launched this year, this month, last month, called, uh, her name is Juno Rushton. And this nice. book is a romantic thriller. So it's, it's 10 degrees scarier than a romantic suspense. Ooh, nice. Yeah, Juno pitched this as um, Jason Bourne-esque romantic thriller. Like, done. I want to read more. Yeah, it's, me it's too. A very, it's a visceral, it was a visceral, short, succinct, clear pitch. And the book is called Every Last Breath. Book number two comes out in August or September this year. Uh, we have almost 100 reviews on Amazon already. And this book has only been on the shelves for about three weeks. It, wow. People are ravenous for the sequel. And honestly, it was just that. It was, it's a Jason Bourne-esque romantic thriller. So the pitch hooked me right away. And then, of course, I read pages and uh, Juno has mastered her craft. Um, and so I know, like, remember I said I have two boxes. I have to love it and I have to know how to make money on it. So yeah. I checked the box marked. I loved it. And the next box was how do I make money on it? Okay, so romantic thriller. So I, I do a deep dive into data, what I know about mass market paperback and ebooks and audiobooks in the subgenre. And I go check, check, check. <laughs> and then I think about subrights. And this book has an outstanding audiobook. And, um, you know, we're working on translation deals and Hollywood deals. There's some Hollywood interest already. And so I knew those things up front. Uh, and so when I offered representation to Juno, I said, here's how I think we're going to make money on this. Yeah. So that's, so that's what I'm looking for. Um, you mentioned Margaret Rogerson, who is a New York Times bestseller also. Oh, same thing. Wow. This is a book. It's, the book is called An Enchantment of Ravens. And it launched on the New York Times bestseller list. And it's about a young woman who falls in love with a fairy prince, but for that is condemned to death and is given the choice of drinking from the immortal well to be with him or um, leaving him. But if she drinks from the immortal well, then she's going to lose basically her humanity. And it's, so it's essentially about a young woman learning how to love without losing herself. Wow. And when I thought about that thematically, um, what, do I, you know, what kinds of books do we want to give to young readers thematically? That's a good one. Yeah. Um, people really got into that. And Casey's book that launched yesterday, I mean, these are all, this is voice and pitch. It's, it's imagining 2019 in a, in a world in which the current president is not the current president, but the president is actually a woman and her biracial son falls in love with the Prince of Wales. So it is a queer romantic comedy. It is hilarious. I made a little sticky note on the manuscript that said, Sarah, this is the bacchanalia of books. Uh, <laughs> and so that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Of the 25,000 queries I read, probably ask to read maybe 30, maybe 20 manuscripts a year. Wow. Um, and so it's very clear to me, a well-written query letter accurately represents what's in the book. Yeah. And so I'm looking for pitch and voice. Nice. Wow. Excellent. Personal, again, I can't speak for all agents. Everybody does it differently. Yeah. Um, but, you know, writers can go to a couple blog posts to see some really well-written queries. One is called Writers Digest Successful Queries. Okay. One is called Evil Editor. Okay. Right. I've heard of that one. Query Shark. Okay. Excellent. Well, that probably would um, give some advice to the second half of the question, which I feel it's kind of a moot point now. Um, what are things that, how do I say it? Um, not just make you say no, but things that you see as being problems that authors haven't conquered yet when mm -hmm. they're trying to query. Um, that step two that I mentioned before, an author doesn't accurately know what genre they've written in. That's mm -hmm. a pretty basic one, but you know what? People are still learning. So yeah. one's genre inside and out. Is, help, is very beneficial from getting from point A to point B. Um, two is I frequently see an author trying too hard to explain what is going on in the book. And when the book is really, really solid, it has a clarity to it that is more easily expressed quickly. And yeah. so I think, again, an, you know, a really well-written query letter is an accurate representation of the publishability of a novel. I see right. that one correlation. And sometimes I see submissions that aren't clear at all. So maybe it's not just that a person is just talking and talking and talking, but the pitch itself doesn't have any sort of form or clarity or punch to it. And again, yeah. these, are, these are 
my slush pile is not filled with junk. I think that's a common misconception. It's filled with good books and really good books and really, really good books. Uh, but it's that much more competitive. Right. This industry is even more competitive than really, really good books. It's wow. 25,000 submissions to get three you know, to get three clients. And of those three clients, I watch my numbers very carefully. I have about a 75% sales ratio. So out of four clients, three people are going to get a book deal. And wow. of those three people, not everybody launches on the New York Times bestseller. It's a very, 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 very competitive business. So yeah. really, really good isn't um, clear and polished yet enough. Yeah. But it's, again, to reiterate, there's not junk in my slush pile. That's not what this is. That's excellent. Wow. That's really, that's, that's gotta be encouraging for people listening. If you, if you're listening and you're not hearing that your work is not necessarily junk just because someone says, I'm not buying this or so representing you today. So true. And the two things a person can do are keep writing and keep reading. Yeah. Excellent. And it sounds like, um, you know, there's an awful, awful lot of writers who I, I think part of it is psychological, but also it is really hard to write um, 100,000 words into a pitch or a synopsis. Mm -hmm. But it seems like some really good, great advice that you have said in a roundabout way is if you can't make something really clear, then look at your story again and see whether or not maybe the story, there's elements in the story that you could rework to make the story clearer. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. You think? That okay. if the pitch isn't clear, it's not the um, query letter that's struggling. It's the manuscript. And again, not that it's junk, that it needs more yeah. help. It needs to yeah. be more clear. This is just such great advice. I'm so glad to have you here. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I love the way you talk, too. It really appeals to me. I like somebody to just come out and say, this is what I think, and this is the research that I've done, and this is my work experience. So that's where all this information is coming from. Your results may vary with other people. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. No, I, you know, I've, I'm surrounded by really, really, really good people, and it's, it's amazing. I, I really think the world of this industry, I really do. We, it's hard. It's competitive. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's readers. It's books. It's bookstores. It's libraries. How awesome is that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Listen, I know that you, in fact, do have an awful lot of work to do. You've got a new New York Times bestseller. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So let's go into the, um, how do you like readers to submit to you? Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you brought I'm that sorry, up. I'm sorry, listen to listeners. No, 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 no. It's so, so something I wanted to mention is that I don't do Facebook anymore. However, I do have a pretty active Twitter account. And if we've gone through this chat, and somebody says, oh, I have a question. I answer professional questions on Twitter as my time allows. And my Twitter handle is at Sarah Megabo. S-A-R-A-M-E-G-I-B-O-W. So know that as long as I'm not slammed with phone calls from Hollywood, which I will be today, <laughs> um, I answer questions on Twitter. Okay, now, if a person wants to submit, Please, I read all the submissions myself. My turnaround time is currently somewhere between five and 14 days wow. for, for queries. And the book has to be finished. The book has to be never itself previously published. Mm -hmm. The book has to be solidly in one of the genres I represent, which are romance, absolutely any subgenre, science fiction fantasy for the adult market, like Jason Huff. Mm -hmm. Young adult novels, absolutely all subgenre. Middle grade novels, absolutely all subgenre. Um, if it's one of those, then my query email address is Sarah Query, S A R A Q U E R Y, at ktliterary.com. K like kite, T like taco, literary.com. And our website is ktliterary.com for submission guidelines, clients, and et cetera. Excellent. And all you need is a, is a pitch and the first three pages of the manuscript in the body of the email. Okay. We'll just say that again. Not first three chapters, a pitch and right. the first three pages in the body, no attachments. Correct. All Beautiful. is on the website, ktliterary.com. Excellent. Yes. This has been That's such great fun. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> 
and, and to speak with everybody and to hear your thoughts, especially, you know, being so many books into it that you are, that's so successful. Hugely congratulations to that. Cause it's, thank you. It's discipline and it's talent and it's hard work. And, you know, 30 years later, we've still got to like this industry. <laughs> you know, right. You know, you're in the right place when time keeps going by and you're like, nope, still happy. Oh my gosh. So true. So true. <laughs> Oh, great. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm sure people are so excited to hear from you. And I really hope everybody, you know, retweet this episode, pass it on to your friends. This is information that people want and don't always know how to get. So thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad we connected at the Romance Writers Convention last year. Happy writing to you. Happy reading to you. And all my best to all the listeners and watchers. <laughs>